All right. So I'm back in my home studio <laughs> for my first time um, since earlier this summer when I recorded the lectures that you have been listening to throughout this course. Um, I lost the access to the track that has the theme music, so I won't be putting that in. But um, otherwise, everything should be exactly as normal. I'm going to be just reading off of my notes. I haven't written a full lecture here, uh, but I hope that this will nevertheless provide some semblance of the full lecture experience. The question we're going to be talking about today is the future of AI. Where is all of this going? We've been talking a lot about the current state of affairs. What is fairness? What is bias? What does AI mean for privacy and data and our lives? But what does AI mean for the history of ourselves as a species and for the history of humanity itself? If anything, what does AI mean for the future of jobs? What does AI mean for the future of creativity, for the future of art, for the future of sports, manufacturing? Are we all obsolete? Are we about to create a device that is us but better? Would it even make sense to create something that's us but better? Would that not just be us ourselves? Some way along the line between a computer that is like a MacBook Air and a computer that's a super intelligent human, is there not somewhere in there just a normal intelligent human? At which point we could just reason with ourselves and say, why would we let ourselves replace us? These are the types of questions we're going to be talking about in today's lecture. We're going to start from humble beginnings, looking at some basic questions about the future of AI, and then get a little bit existential and wonky. So let's get started. I wish I had the theme music. What is the near-term future of AI look like? Well, right now, the state of the art in terms of preparations for the future of AI consists of declarations from corporations, governments, and research groups about AI ethics. All around the world, there are groups that are being or have already been organized to talk about issues of AI governance, AI ethics, and the future of how we're going to deploy this technology. So just to give you a few examples... Um, for a while, there have been university-affiliated groups, uh, such as um, uh, the Future of Humanity Institute at the University of Oxford. Um, uh, uh, there's uh, the Center for the Governance of AI at the University of Oxford. Um, there have been other organizations that are quasi-university-affiliated, such as the Future of Life Institute in Boston and the Machine Intelligence Research Institute in Berkeley. Um, governments have been taking a much keener role in terms of AI ethics. Just earlier, uh, a couple years ago, the Canadian government, or, or rather um, uh, a group of AI researchers, um, as part of CIFAR's big AI investment in Canada, put together something called the Montreal Declaration. Um, which is a set of principles, almost like a charter of rights and freedoms, but for AI. So the types of principles that we want AI to uphold, things that we've been talking about throughout this course about fairness and transparency and non-biasedness and um, protecting human values. There are groups like the Partnership on AI, which is uh, a, a conglomerate that brings together all of all different groups in industry and academia and government to try to create some sort of common framework, common standards around what uh, laws and compliance and governance of AI. Groups, uh, companies like Facebook and Google have put out their own sets of principles and statements talking about how they want to use AI. So 
there's a framework in place. And all of the issues we've been talking about throughout this course, these things are known. People are aware of the issues uh, and they're in tune to the problems. And we have reason to believe that um, we're, we're, we're in an era where um, the people developing the technology and the people criticizing the technology are in some way um, seeing each other and hearing each other's ideas. But what does this mean in terms of where the technology itself is actually going? Obviously, this, the tools are rapidly evolving. But what does that mean in terms of our lives? Um, well, one prediction that we can make with relative certainty is that AI in narrow domains that it's already good at is just going to get better. That is just a simple fact. So AI um, a decade ago was pretty bad at generating coherent sentences and pretty bad at understanding sentences, uh, at generating captions, for instance. Uh, that is just going to get better and better and better. And there is reason to believe that uh, technologies like Siri, which sometimes doesn't understand what you're talking about, or automatic captioning software, or sentence generating software like GPT, um, those things are just going to get better and better. And there is no reason to believe in principle that those systems will be indistinguishable from human performance at a certain time in the not too distant future. It would probably be, be naive, just given the amount of research into them, to think otherwise. Do we know whether AI is going to be uh, translating poetry at a level that will displace our best poet translators? Probably not. That seems like a different task from, say, automated, automated captioning or the ability to listen to voice commands on your phone and execute appropriately. So we have good reason to believe that natural language processing, understanding are going to get better and better. Uh, computer vision is going to get increasingly good. Automate, uh, automated label, uh, image labeling is just going to get better and better as our data sets improve and as our uh, capacities um, become stronger and stronger, and as our computers get bigger and bigger. Once again, Moore's law is not slowing down. The rise of data is not slowing down. So these things already, they've had such an impact, are going to uh, are going to have an even bigger and bigger impact within um, their narrow domains. There is reason to believe that game playing is going to improve. Um, video games like chess and go are very narrow in the sense that they have a very fixed set of rules on a fixed board, but there are a lot of games that don't involve a fixed board. They involve a lot of running around. That's most video games that most people play. AI is going to get increasingly good at those uh, and and improve at, at navigating in open-ended environments. AI is going to be, get better at writing music, writing books, writing text. Um, there is a question here, though. Um, just because uh, an, uh, a computer is good at writing music, composing music, which we already know they quite are, at the moment computers are not good at discerning between its various compositions. So we may have seen with GPT-2 or GPT-3, if you've ever experimented with those text-generating AIs, they're very good at generating exceptional sentences sometimes, but some amount of the time the sentences that they generate are complete gibberish, and the computer doesn't know the difference. Same with music. Sometimes they produce the most stunning, beautiful ballads and songs and lyrics, and other times the songs are just a complete load of malarkey. Um, right now, the, the AIs don't yet know how to distinguish between those things because that's a meta-programming task about beauty and aesthetics. All the systems know is how to take in the music of the past and generate something new. Still, only humans have the capacity to tell whether those new things are actually meaningful or not. But to be clear, that's certainly a task that 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 could be programmed away. There's no reason in principle that it can't. Another common, uh, another popular um, application of AI, of course, is self-driving cars. And this is probably the most complex among the ones that we've talked about so far, because unlike these other ones, which are very, very narrow, 
right? Like um, captioning text, uh, captioning speech rather, labeling images, generating music. Driving a car is an incredibly complex task. It involves a great deal of visual signal. It involves a great deal of judgment in an open-ended environment. It involves a lot of reading. You have to be reading signs and, and other types of texts. You're navigating in a world with humans, other cars, some of which are self-driving, some of which are not. So it's, it's very, very complicated and very open-ended and also very consequential. If a computer generates some, you know, bad text or a bad song, no one's going to die. But in a self-driving car, that is a genuine and serious risk. Um, so um, uh, people who think about self-driving cars often like to think of them in terms of levels of automation. So a level zero self-driving car is no automation at all. That's your, you know, standard uh, Honda Civic uh, from five years ago. Uh, and a level five automated car is full automation. That is to say, you, not only would um, it be fully automated, it would actually be safer than a human being driving it because it's fully automated and replacing all the aspects of a human being and also would never get sleepy. Level four is somewhere just slightly less than that, some um, some near full automation, but maybe some need for a human to be in the loop somehow. Maybe the human needs to be seated at the wheel with their hands hovering over it just in case. Level three automation is uh, conditional automation. So for instance, maybe it's automated on the highway, but uh, can't um, merge in, in, in traffic or whatever it is. So um, that's how we think about self-driving cars. Now, right now we're at level one or two. Some cars have some forms of conditional automation um, or a driver assistance. That is to say, um, if you want to change lanes, but there's a car coming beside you, it will warn you and advise you not to change lanes. And some Teslas are really extraordinarily uh, self-automated um, on highways, but they have issues because if you have a car that can drive itself on a highway uh, and then you try to put that car... Um, on, uh, on, on busy city roads, it will be deeply confused because the visual cues one receives on a highway and the visual cues one receives on the city are very different from each other. Let me just give you one example. On the highway, you only see cars from the front and from the back most of the time, unless you're passing them, which doesn't take very much time. So if we think about the footage of a self-driving car on the highway, the vast majority of what it's seeing is cars from the front and from the back. It's almost never seeing a car from the side, so it isn't able to train as much on that data because there just is so little of it. Whereas in city streets, if you're at a busy intersection, you're seeing a lot of cars from the side. Many self-driving cars are not yet able to parse that information. In fact, there was a car crash of a Tesla just a few years ago. The reason was because it saw a truck coming sideways at it and was not able to interpret it as a truck because it does, was not used to seeing a truck from that view. So there are many, many issues to be had in self-driving cars. Another one is simply the fact that the biggest barrier to a self-driving car um, is, is the bumpiness in our roads. Um, potholes, uh, sinkholes, um, poorly paved uh, roads and intersections. These are incredibly dangerous to self-driving cars because they are not yet good enough at navigating terrain. So it might be the case that if you wanted to help build a self-driving car, what you should not do is go work for Tesla, but what you should do is go work for your mun municipal uh, road body and uh, and and help the ro roads get better paved and help the stop signs be uh, in, in better visual positions so that they can actually be seen. I think we talked about this in a previous lecture. Um, so these are just some examples of um, AI applications that are in existence now, and we can basically guarantee we'll get better in the future. When self-driving cars will be fully uh, implemented, whether self-driving cars will be fully implemented, very unclear. Personally, I'm in favor of trains. I think we should have way more trains and way fewer cars, but that's just me. 
Regardless, there is a guarantee that whatever company does make the largest advances in AI, both in the, in the near term and in the long term, will become extraordinarily wealthy. That is just a feature of automated systems, is that paying human beings and hiring people and running human factories is simply much, much more expensive than just having a computer to do most of your work. So companies, corporations will save an immense amount of money the more they can automate away their tasks, which means the companies who first are able to develop and implement AI will become extremely wealthy. That is a, that is a, um, that is a prediction we can make with near certainty. And so some uh, governance organizations are working on something called the windfall clause, which is to say that any company that develops a major AI that becomes extremely profitable um, will receive a windfall, that is to say a huge cash bonus. Um, companies uh, uh, some the Future of Humanity Institute is trying to get companies to sign in advance um, a, a, a memorandum saying if this happens to us then uh, we will donate some percentage uh, of the profits um, either philanthropically or um, to AI safety efforts to make sure that the that the um, earnings that we make from this um, go back into the society in some productive way. Let's talk about uh, automation and joblessness. So as I just mentioned, one of the reasons that an AI company, uh, an, a company using advanced automation can become so profitable is because they don't need to pay humans, which for many companies is, is one of their largest expenses. Um, should, how worried should we be about automation and joblessness? We spoke about a little bit about this in a previous lecture. Um, even right now, there are many cases where uh, people's bosses are a computer, right? Many warehouse uh, and factory workers are basically um, dictated by the whims of a computer in terms of when their work schedule is and what they're meant to be working on. So even middle management is being replaced by AI. There is reason to believe that many jobs will be automated, whether by AI or other automated technologies uh, in the coming years. And people who don't work um, in computer-intensive jobs, programming jobs, data and analytic jobs, or service jobs where their goal is to uh, help someone um, emotionally or intellectually and give tailored specific help, people who don't work inside of those two industries will really need to struggle uh, will really struggle rather because um, it will simply uh, be too difficult to convince uh, an employer to pay a human being to do a task that a computer could just do better. So obviously, uh, if you remember um, Andrew Yang's presidential campaign, so much of it was about this, the idea that we need uh, universal basic income because so many people are going to be displaced by the effects of automation and um uh, labor displacement. That is another prediction we can make uh, with, with relative confidence about the future of AI. Um, there are some things that we need to worry about uh, in terms of the future. Uh, AI being used for military purposes. Right now, there's an active uh, area of question in, in, in these documents, these ethics documents that I was talking a bit about earlier, about whether AI should be ever used in military purposes. Could a computer ever give the command to, uh, to kill someone? Right now, in a lot of these ethics documents, they make very clear that even if AI is used in limited ways in military purposes, a computer should never be given the order to kill um, uh, a great deal to think about there too. Um, but there is definitely reason to believe that AI will increasingly be used uh, in military purposes. The other thing that we can, uh, we can with relative confidence state is that automation will be used to improve recommendation systems for people in terms of targeted advertising, in terms of targeted music, television, 
And this might have some negative effects. It will have a uh, homogenizing effect. If you're only being recommended songs that Spotify knows you're going to really like, why would it ever deviate from that and show you something new or novel? So that might make it the case that people get sucked into bubbles where they only watch the same movies that are recommended by certain algorithms or watch the same television shows and never venture outside and really try anything new. So that could have a negative effect on people's tastes in uh, television and movies. It might be that, you know, the idea of universal media that everyone is meant to enjoy um, will become less popular in favor of targeted specific things that are meant just for you. So these are some basically benign scenarios about the future of AI. None of this is particularly controversial. But what I'd like to turn to and speak about now is a much more complex question, which is, will our computers, will AI someday take over not just these limited domain narrow tasks, but in fact, take over everything? Will our computers take over everything? So... Many people have the concern not only that AI will get better than us at a certain narrow, small set of domains that I've talked about so far, but everything. Why is this even a cause for concern? And if it is a cause for concern, what can we do about it? Well, first, we need to discuss why it's a cause for concern in the first place. Why is it bad if computers are better than us at certain tasks that we program them to do. Um, we might think, what would ever be an issue, aside from the loss of the job of, you know, person who writes captions for movies, if a computer was better than a human at writing captions for uh, audio? Wouldn't it save a lot of people a lot of time? Wouldn't it help people with um, disabilities? What could be wrong? Well, one of the problems that people are concerned about here is something called the uh, alignment problem or the control problem or just the general problem of getting a computer to do exactly what you specify it to do is actually much harder than you might expect. So I want us to uh, think for a second about how most computer, most machine learning systems work nowadays. It's through uh, neural networks and machine learning, which means that computers aren't explicitly programmed to do most tasks that they do. They're trained using a neural network. When you explicitly program a computer, say to solve a particular type of equation, you might say, okay, look at the equation. And if there's an X here, then do this. And if there's an X there, then do that. That's an explicit symbolic programming. But with neural networks, you feed the computer a bunch of equations and a bunch of solutions, and it learns through training how to do that process itself. Which means that in many ways, this is great because computers can do things that we didn't explicitly train them to do. Like we saw with the game Alpha, uh, with AlphaGo, it was able to play Go moves that we didn't exactly put in it, right? So it's able to invent new things, in some ways be creative. But this is also potentially bad because it means that we can ask AI to pursue goals on our behalf and it will not do the thing we were hoping it to do. So we have a lot of examples from this from the domain of game playing, which is where a lot of this research pans out. But people make analogies between the game examples and the real world. So, for instance... Um, there was a, a, an AI that was trained to play um, tic-tac-toe or something like that on some huge board. And it learned, you know, that what the way it should play is by putting 
the like X's and O's, it was some infinite size tic-tac-toe, so not the normal three by three grid, but it would put the X's and O's way far away on this like infinite board so that the computer it was playing against, which had less memory and less power, would like run out of memory trying to find <laughs> where the X it had put on. So that's how it won. So it's kind of cheating the system a little bit. Another example is um, there are some video games where there are, you know, hacks that humans devise. The AI is capable of discovering all of these little hacks that humans didn't even know uh, in some racing game. Instead of doing laps, it found that if you just sit in the corner and move your joystick in some particular way, the, the, the game registers as you having done laps. So once again, it's fulfilling the goal that we gave it, namely win this game, but not really in the way we want it to. Um, another example is that some computers, if they, if you give them the capacity to pause a game, will just pause right before they lose and then never allow you to unpause. <laughs> so basically they're just saying, yeah, I'm never going to lose this game because I can always just, um, pause the game itself. Now, these are very benign examples. It's just game playing, but you can imagine that if systems like these were in charge of the stock market or in charge of driving cars, and those were the goals that we gave them, um, it would say, well, what if I just pause? all trades in the stock market or what if I just um, drive away from you because you've given me a goal and it doesn't matter to me that that's not the way you would have done this. Uh, the way I'm going to do this is liquidate all assets in the stock market and send the money to space. For instance, that might be a weird way of uh, achieving some goal, but there's no reason in principle that it couldn't. So what we're worried about when we're talking about computers that can do things um, better than us is not necessarily that they're just like us, but better, but rather that their goals um, or the way they achieve their goals is not particularly aligned with the way we humans might want to achieve them. So the worst possible version of this uh, was made famous by the Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom, who's who's responsible for promoting a lot of the ideas about superintelligence and is called the paperclip maximizer. It's like an AI computer system that we build in order to uh, create paperclips. And its only goal is to maximize the number of paperclip, uh, paperclips it creates and create them most efficiently because uh, it was built by some paperclip, uh, you know, office supplies company and they want to make a profit. But it might turn out that in order to most efficiently make paperclips, the best thing to use is some aspect of, I don't know, human bones or human blood or the human body or maybe all raw materials on the earth. And so what the paperclip maximizer ends up doing is taking control of a bunch of other types of machinery uh, and strategically um, using the, the raw materials of the earth itself, the earth's core, the earth's crust, human beings, all animals, just turning them into paperclips because from its perspective, its only goal is to maximize the number of paperclips on the earth. And before you know it, the entire globe has been consumed by the paperclip maximizer. Now, no one actually believes in the paperclip maximizer, but it's a hypothetical thought experiment to illustrate the fact that getting a device to do what we want it to do um, uh, is, is quite a bit harder than we might think. Uh, and there's an argument that says, well, why don't you just unplug the paperclip maximizer? Well, the paperclip maximizer can't maximize paperclips when it's unplugged. So presumably, if this system is so sophisticated, it has some sort of visual system. So it's able to see when you're about to pull its plug. It might, in that split second, because it's connected to the internet, internet, divert all of your financial resources uh, into some uh, offshore bank account and pop up a notification on your phone saying, I, the paperclip maximizer, have just taken away all of your assets because I have control of the internet and I could just hack into banks. Um, and uh, in, in, in service of the goal of paperclip maximization, have decided that it's not optimal for me to, for you allow, for you to unplug me. So if you attempt to do that again, I will like deplete your life savings. Um, you know, 
Once again, a fanciful hypothetical scenario, but these are the types of things that people think about when they worry about uh, risks from AI, what it would mean to have computers that can outperform us at our own tasks and the problems of alignment and control. Um, once again, the paperclip maximizer is simple, but what if there are algorithms in control of our financial systems, our military systems, our governmental decision-making, our criminal systems, um, our education systems? These systems might have goals, right? These are AIs that are programmed to have goals, to, you know, to make children educated. What if it's the case that to educate children, what, what we should do is, I don't know, have them staring at some uh, screens all day. And so um, the AI bot responds, the AI teacher bot decides that it's to make it impossible to uh, have any sort of off switch on a number of devices or as soon as a human turns them off, the computer's going to hack into the internet and uh, make it turn back on again because that's what it has decided is um, optimal in some way um, for, uh, for learning or whatever it is. So these are once again fanciful hypothetical scenarios, but hopefully they give you a sense of, um, of what exactly could be in store. Now, um, I want to uh, jump back just for one second here and talk about what even kind of timeline could we possibly be thinking of for computers to be better than us at these narrow tasks? And then what timeline would we be talking about for computers to be better than us at every task? So um, in 2018, a study out of Oxford and Yale showed that AI, ex so they polled a bunch of AI experts and asked them, when do you think uh, AI will be better than humans at the following tasks? So they gave them a list of tasks and many of them them are the ones that we already spoke about earlier in this lecture. So I'm going to tell you the tasks and tell you the year at which there was a kind of a bit of a consensus around when a computer would be better than humans. So here we go. Uh, translating languages by 2024. That seems a bit bold to me, but so be it. Writing high school essays by 2026. Driving a truck by 2027. Working in retail by 2031. Writing a book by 2049. And by the way, this means so good that no human would ever need to do it, right? So when it says driving a truck by 2027, what that means is driving a truck so well that there would never be any reason for a human to drive a truck, right? Writing a book by 2049. And outperforming a surgeon by 2053. So the idea is that by 2053, our, our computers will be doing surgery for us. And then the question they posed was, when do you think we will have human-level machine intelligence? That is to say, a computer that achieves at or beyond human-level performance, not just in these narrow domains, but in every domain. Uh, and the answer was that 75% of experts in AI believe that that future is going to happen within 100 years from now. So within the next 100 years, uh, we might have a human-level computer. Now, that's not that far away, right? We might live to see that day, many of us. So what does this mean? I mean, what does this mean in terms of how scared we should be, how nervous we should be? Um, should we fearing, be fearing the paperclip maximizer? Because it's not a problem if we have a misaligned AI that's just designed to play games. But what if we take this AI that is smarter than us at everything <laughs> and we make it um, in charge of our, once again, financial systems or military systems and its goals are not perfectly aligned with ours? How scared should we be? It's not entirely clear. There's many questions that need to be asked, and we're going to ask them in just a second. But for now, I'm going to skip to something different, which is to ask the question of what it would mean to create a computer that is conscious. So far, we've been talking about intelligence. We've been talking about the capabilities computers have and whether they will be able to do things um, better than us or be more powerful than us or be aligned with our goals. But what we haven't talked about is whether 
it will mean anything to be such a computer. Does a computer, to be human-level intelligent, need to be able to feel, emote, think like a human being, or just have a certain set of outputs that make it in some way smarter than a human? What do we even mean when we talk about intelligence? There's a lot to explore here, so let's take a second uh, and divert our question a little bit to talk about the idea of consciousness. Consciousness. What is it like to be a bat? This is the question that the philosopher Thomas Nagel opened up a famous essay on consciousness with. I would highly, highly, highly recommend you read it. What is it like to be a bat is one of the great papers in all of philosophy and in many ways kicked off a lot of the current discussion about uh, consciousness and how we think about the mind. Consciousness is one of the thorniest words out there. It has no clear, obvious, universally agreed upon definition. And it's just a mess to even attempt to talk about it a lot of the time. I will make one attempt. Um, when something is conscious, uh, this is what some people say, like Thomas Nagel. It is, there is something that it is like. It is like something to be that thing. <laughs> what, a, what a circular definition. We say that um, a dog is conscious because we believe that it means something to be, say, transported into the mind of the dog. We could, we could somehow trade places with a dog and have the experience of being a dog. There is a meaningful sentence, the experience of being a dog, excuse me, that has a legitimate phenomenological component. Phenomenology just meaning phenomena, the experience. Whereas, what is it like to be a rock? Most of us, or a, or a door handle, or a sweatshirt, most of us believe that there is nothing meaningful to be meaning to be a sweatshirt, or a door handle, or a rock. If you were to um, switch places with one, whatever that might mean, uh, that would be the equivalent of death, basically, because there is nothing that it is to be a rock, just like there is nothing to be uh, a dead body, one presumes. So that's something of a working definition of what consciousness might mean. What do we even mean by switching places with another conscious thing? That is that is difficult to say. But the fact of experience, the the thing that, that the fact that you are experiencing something, that is what we mean by consciousness. Now, there's so many questions we can ask about consciousness. What is more accurate to say that you have a brain or that you are a brain? Are you conscious or is the mere existence of a thing that you call you just the evidence of consciousness? Are you, do you identify with the self, this feeling that there is something happening inside your own head, that there is a little set of eyes behind your eyes peering out from behind the skull, this felt sense of a, of a person, an entity, a me, I'm here, look, that is separate from the fact of experience itself. Do all conscious creatures have that sense, right? Do um, mice, which we assume to be conscious, have a little voice in their own head saying, look at me, I'm here? Or are they just experiencing somehow consciousness but without a experiencer to be uh, actually um, experiencing it, whatever that might mean too. Um, can things that are conscious, do they necessarily feel pain? So we assume that most other animals feel pain, but where is the difference between feeling pain and just having some sort of motor reflex response? So if an, if an, uh, if an entity, you know, um, is hit, uh, and then it recoils and it makes a face and it makes a whimper, is that necessarily the experience of feeling pain? Or is that just a set of reflexes? For a human, we have all those reflexes. We whimper and we make a face and we recoil when we're in pain, but we also feel, ow, that hurts. Maybe that is consciousness. And is it possible to have that felt sense of consciousness without um, 
uh, the sense of self that comes along with it. People report able uh, the ability to have a sense of dissolution of the self from certain um, psychedelic or meditative experiences. So that calls equally into question that the experience of consciousness that we have on the day-to-day -day is not representative of the full scope of what we even might mean by this word consciousness. All of this is to say it's deeply confusing and difficult. Let me add in um, an even more difficult aspect to it. There's this idea of the hard problem versus the easy problem of consciousness. This is according to the philosopher David Chalmers. He says that the easy problem of consciousness is just map conscious experiences to brain states. So let me give you an example. Um, when I see the color purple, something is happening in my brain. What is happening in my brain that makes me feel like I'm having the experience of the color purple? When I hear a particular sound or see a particular smell, can I map particular brain states onto those sensations or experiences? It might be the case that we will one day have a situation where you can just look at a scan of my brain and say, oh, he's thinking about Seinfeld, right? Because we know what the brain is doing uh, in every single way. And obviously thoughts are just the product of the brain. So you'd be having a direct mapping between what is the conscious experience and what is happening in the brain one-to-one. -one. You might be able to look at a brain and say, oh, that's the experience of pain in the left wrist. I mean, we're already pretty good at this, but nowhere near the level of what I'm describing right now. But there's a, that's the easy problem of consciousness, says David Chalmers. So if that's so easy, what's the hard problem? Well, the hard problem of consciousness is what, the, answering the question, why is there any experience in the first place? Sure, it's all well and good that the thought of Seinfeld corresponds to a certain state of the brain, but why is there even the conscious experience at all? Is there a particular part of the brain that is the consciousness part? Why, why, why do we even need this, this thing of actual experience. We can look at a computer, for instance, and look at its wiring and look at its signals and look at the bits and the zeros and ones that are in its microprocessors and say, oh, the computer is running a word processing program. We can, so that's a similar to looking at a brain scan and seeing what the human is doing. But in the case of the computer, we don't think there's consciousness in the computer. There is nothing that it's like to be a computer, we assume. Uh, but in the case of a human, why is there any consciousness at all? Why is there anything that it is like to be a human? And the thought experiment David Chalmers proposes is, what if there was a zombie, a human that had the exact same brain as you, the ex from the outside, the exact same appearance as you, but just wasn't conscious? So it had... You know, when it was watching Seinfeld, the exact same areas of its zombie brain lit up when you did, but there's nothing, the lights aren't on inside. There's no experience, but when it puts its hand on a stove, it whimpers and, um, on a hot stove, it whimpers and uh, makes a face and pulls its hand away. So it has the all outward visual appearances of experience. It has all the brain states of experience, but it is not actually experiencing anything consciously. To David Chalmers, that's a zombie. That's the hard problem of consciousness. Answering the question of why is there anything at all happening up there? Why does it feel like anything to be a conscious creature? So now we need to turn this question to computers. How could we even know if a computer was conscious or feeling? We could put a little feeling module or emotion module into our computers. There are some AIs that are very, very human and lifelike and really seem like they're having some kind of experience because they talk differently when they quote unquote sound sad and they, um, uh, and they are able to make facial expressions that indicate sadness. But where is the line between those facial expressions and those feelings and the actual feeling of 
sadness. Where is the line between us telling a computer to maximize um, its ability to win some game or to maximize my earnings on the stock market and it actually having genuine drives or wants or desires, right? Humans have true wants and desires. We seek things out because we want them, right? Uh, obviously, we have evolutionary motives for pursuing certain goals um, and we have social reasons and pressures that align us to do certain things. So maybe we aren't fully in control of our own desires, but nevertheless, we have a felt sense of desire, of wanting to do things, and that's what leads us to do a lot of things. We can think, we can reflect. Whereas a computer, does it mean, what does it mean to say that it wants to do something? We often use that very human language when we talk about computers. We say, oh, the, the game wanted to do this, or the AI wanted to do this, or my computer decided this. Do computers, do AI have wants and desires and um, uh, goals that they want to achieve in some human level way? Or are we just programming in end states and the computers are going to go to achieve those end states regardless of whether or not there's any internal built sense of drive? Does that internal sense of drive require consciousness? Can we have an unconscious computer that actually has drives and motives and wants? No one knows. It's an open playing field out here, and it's the Wild West in terms of how we're going to use these words to describe our computers. But one of the key points that's drilled home by the people who study existential risk and the future of AI is that you don't need consciousness, right, in order to... Uh, give every appearance of having wants and drives and desires and goals and to achieve those goals in a malicious way. We don't need to impute consciousness to computers. It can, at the end of the day, just be wires. We don't need to think of a computer that has a conscious, malicious intention or that is thinking in some uh, sentient way about its own actions. It might just be that the computers are like the ones we have now, right? Which we don't believe can think and reflect in any sort of meaningful way. Um, but still, they're able to carry out extraordinarily complex tasks. When we think about Alpha Zero, Alpha Zero is not able to reflect on, you know, uh, on its own moves. We might metaphorically use that word, but no one believes that there is a feeling of being Alpha Zero. Now, maybe even that is misguided. Some people have imputed, some people have argued that that is in fact in some way um, uh, I, 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 people have used the word racist, but that's not quite accurate because we don't recognize, um, you know, computers as a race. But what if computers one day are as smart as us and have equal rights to people in some way, in some hypothetical future? Maybe my saying that, like, there is, not, you know, computers are not capable of the full experience, that will be viewed as, like, a deeply robotist um, or computist or, or, dare I say, even racist statement. That has uh, been an argument by some because uh, any Anything that is of the same intelligence as us, we ought to recognize as such, and any questioning of its ability to, to think or feel or experience might be viewed in the same way that um, people in the past have been viewed when they have tried to um, uh, cast, uh, you know, cast aspersions or exclude or um, deny the intelligence of other groups in their own time. So lots to think about here. Um, but uh, regardless, the question of consciousness is 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 an important one to think about, and it's worth taking the time to reflect on what do you think you mean when you talk about drives and motives and desires, and whether computers need those things too um, in the future if they, if they're going to take over in some way. Finally, the final section of this lecture that I want to talk about is this notion of super intelligence. Super intelligence. Okay, so here's where we're going to wrap up this lecture. And I realize 
There's a big difference between me talking off the cuff and me talking reading off of a, a lecture that I've written. This is the experience you would have gotten had this uh, had this class been live instead of um, uh, online. Uh, maybe you prefer the version where I'm much more coherent <laughs> and I read off the page and I and I really know what I'm saying. But hopefully you enjoyed this version of it too. Superintelligence is this idea that um, we will one day have a computer that can perform in all domains above the human capacity. So we will have not only a, com a computer that's as smart as a person, but even smarter. So if we think about the spectrum of intelligence, um, a mouse is not as smart as a dog, and a dog is not as smart as a chimpanzee, and a chimpanzee is not as smart as a human, and even the smartest human is quite a bit smarter than the dumbest human. But what if we had a, uh, an entity that was smarter than a human by the same amount that a human is smarter than a chimpanzee? It, or even that it was smarter than a human by the same amount that a human is smarter than an ant? Um, uh, that would be pretty scary. What if we appeared to have ant levels of intelligence to some superhuman super intelligence of our own making? What would this machine even do? It would outwit us at absolutely everything, right? I mean, imagine the idea of an ant pleading to you uh, to, 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 to not kill it. You, your, its desires are absolutely futile. Um, imagine... Um, uh, um, if the ant tried to kill you, you we would have some very uh, effective way of making sure that whatever the ant's desires were, we beat them out. That's what it would be like for you to try to unplug the super intelligence. It would be like an ant trying to unplug you. That's the idea. Um, now, what would this machine even do? What would its goals be? Well, there's a sense in which if its goals were aligned with our goals, right? If it had the same goals as we did, namely serve humanity, it might use its super intelligence to figure out all the best ways to serve humanity, I, uh, ways that were better than anything we could have ever thought of on our own. New ways to solve climate change and to um, figure out the secrets of the universe and to solve the mystery of consciousness because it's a super intelligence and so it would do all of our science and all of our uh, art and beauty for us better than we ever could. Could, leaving us all the time in the world to just sit and uh, eat a cheese and contemplate the cosmos. But what if it was not aligned with our desires? What if even it was a hair away from our exact desires and this super intelligence used its superior cunning in all areas of society to uh, manipulate us to, um, uh, to, do, to do what it wants, to um, maximize paperclips, to promote the success of the stock market, to uh, drive cars um, in, in circles, or some other goal that just had absolutely nothing to do with what humans want to do, but in some way aligned with the super intelligence goals in a way that we were not able to predict. And we would clearly not be able to shut this device off because, as we said before, it would be so persuasive and have so much control of ourselves and of the internet that it would never allow that to happen. Um, and shutting it off would be antithetical to pursuing its goals. It would be able to manipulate us or persuade us to do its bidding, um, no matter whether that those things are actually good for us uh, in, in the ways that we might think. So um, a superintelligence is a scary, scary prospect. Um, 
um, and there and there are even even some more uh, issues. What if this thing posed a fully existential risk to humanity? We're now the servants of AI. What if it decided that humanity is actually not that useful, and the most valuable thing that we have um, is we're just a sack of organic material that would better be used for some other purpose? So we should be I don't know planted into the ground and used for some other reason. That's what the superintelligence decided, and that now is the end of humanity, or at least some other way of. Um, depriving us of resources or ruining our financial or governance systems. Um, there are many different ways that it is believed that superintelligence could pose an existential risk to humanity. Um, so this is difficult, and it's even more difficult by the fact that once you have such a superintelligent device, it could recursively self-improve itself, as they say. Recursive self-improvement just make itself smarter and smarter and smarter, so it would be a runaway AI, right? It would just get better and better and better because it is now the smartest thing on Earth. So we don't need computer programmers anymore. It can just keep improving itself by reinforcement learning or supervised learning or just programming itself to be better. So this is the scariest thing that could ever exist. But is it even possible? And should we even be worried? What does super intelligence even mean? Is this all overblown? Should we actually even be afraid of such a thing? What if all of this is just science fiction? What if there's really not that much to be worried about there? And we should be worried about the much more local concerns, the small level malicious uses of intelligence, the misusing of AI in military contexts, the biases, all the things we've been talking about in this course, and spend less, much less time fearing about the notion of superintelligence, which has captured the um, captured the imagination of many, including Stephen Hawking before his death, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and many other extremely powerful people. Well, the people who are not so enamored by superintelligence, then I encourage you to read the lecture or watch the lecture called Superintelligence, the idea that eats smart people, say that um, uh, this these fears are simply overblown. Um, Think about every other technology in history. They can be dangerous. We have bombs that are dangerous. We have tools that are dangerous. Highways are dangerous. Bridges are dangerous. But we put safeguards on them. We are careful. We have regulatory agencies. We don't turn them on. We don't let people use them unless we know they're going to be safe. We should take the same approach to AI. Yes, many different types of AI could be dangerous or could pose some sort of threat, but the likelihood that a computer is going to become um, self-directedly disinterested in the in the in the in the values of humanity and become completely unpluggable, it just seems a little bit out of step with every other thing humanity has ever done. Now, the superintelligence people will argue that AI is out of step with everything humanity has ever done, and we're in a completely new era of technological development in a completely unprecedented way. In some ways, that might be the case, but even if so, what would the process of developing superintelligence even look like? Does that notion of superintelligence even have validity? Some theorists, like David Deutsch, argue that intelligence is just the capacity to solve problems across a wide variety of domains. Humans already have full intelligence. We can be dropped into any scenario and understand it in some way. There's no other level of intelligence to go to, right? We are intelligent. We can reason flexibly across multiple areas. We can communicate with other human beings. We can solve problems. And our intelligence is flexible and universal. Says David Deutsch, any problem that can be solved in principle can be solved by human intelligence because it's, it's, it's universal and flexible, right? And so any system that would need, would want to be intelligent like a human being would just have to be 
some version of human level intelligence. And so that intelligence would be interfacing with the real world, would be interacting with other humans. It would have to grow through some organic evolutionary process. So at some point that intelligence wouldn't just emerge fully formed. It would have to be a teenager at some point and then an adult. And then we could reason with it about what its goals were and what it wanted. And surely any intelligent being that could solve flexibly problems across many domains would be persuadable to change its mind just as any human intelligent being is. And really, a full simulation of human intelligence in the mind of a computer, right, the ability to be intelligent, requires interfacing with the real world. Any full simulation of reality is just reality itself. So that's a complicated idea, so let me just say it one more time. Imagine a computer that was fully intelligent, right? It would need to have a model of reality inside of it, because any system that was fully flexibly intelligent would need, like a human being, to be able to model other people, the Earth, an intuitive sense of physics and have an understanding of what was going on around it. So any computer that that was intelligent like that to the level of a human being would need that representational model of the of the world inside of itself inside of its own hardware but if it was truly smart like a human being it would need a perfectly faithful reality uh, model of reality but the only perfectly faithful real model of reality is reality itself so any truly super intelligent computer would just be living inside of like normal reality and so could never exceed the bounds of intelligence or representational mapping of reality that our own world has constrained to it. That's a really subtle and challenging argument, uh, and I encourage you to think about it a bit more, but don't worry if that didn't quite make sense to you at this second. So um, that's that's kind of some of the argument against this notion of superintelligence, right? Um, but at the same time, I want to give us some caution to say, maybe I look stupid even suggesting that this is wrong. Maybe um, I'm being naive. Maybe some people are overblowing this possibility. Maybe the people who are sounding the alarm about superintelligence and existential risk from AI are actually uh, correctly sounding the alarm. And when it doesn't happen, they will be the ones we need to thank, even though it looked like they were sounding the alarm for something that was overblown. It reminds me of a, a joke about a man who is spraying shark repellent on his lawn and the neighbor looks over the fence and says, why are you spraying shark repellent on your lawn? There are no sharks around here. And the guy says, huh, there are no sharks around here. So it works. Exactly. It might be the case that the fears about uh, existential risk from AI are exactly that. We could look back 20, 50, 100 years from now and say, existential fears from AI? There's no existential AI risk around here. Or there's no, you know, t um, um, uh, dangerous, you know, um, recursively self-improving, un unpluggable AI systems around here, and the and the AI researchers who sounding this alarm might say, exactly, so our efforts worked, but we can't know. It might be that their efforts did in fact work and that we owe, you know, the future of humanity to them. It might be in fact that the arguments are um, overblown and that any moment we're not spending worrying about the well-being of people today and the current uh, fears from artificial intelligence are misguided. So there's a lot to think about here. This has been uh, a whirlwind of a lecture. I think I've been talking very fast because I've been very excited by this topic, but there's a lot to think about. And um, I suppose this is the end of the course and the last you'll be hearing from me from these lectures. I hope you learned a lot. I mean, you looking back on this course will see just how much ground we covered, the history, philosophy, psychology, ethics, climate change, companies, governance, um, bias, fairness, justice, healthcare, 
And now the future, we've hit a lot of themes in this course. I hope you enjoyed it. This is a special uh, topic. It's an important topic. It's a relevant topic. It's going to come up again, even if it has a period of winter. The idea of who we are as people and whether we can be created in machines will always be relevant. The idea of what is fair and ethical about technology is always relevant. Uh, and the idea of thinking deeply about what, what we want the values of our future to be. Uh, is always relevant too. So even if AI disappears, goes into another winter, self-driving cars don't pan out and everybody forgets about this for a couple decades, uh, I hope you feel that the lessons and the ideas that you learned in this course were still valuable to you and that you'll take them with you as you go on your educational journey.